If you have a Bible with you, if you'd open it to the book of Romans chapter 8, continuing in this glorious chapter, taking hikes up the mountain. We've talked about the the metaphor of, of, of hiking up Mount Everest because this is the tallest peak in the whole New Testament, and that's where we're at. Last week, we looked at uh, future hope. We talked about how important our perspective on these things is and how important it needs to be because even though life is full at times, uh, not all the time, of course, but at times it's full of great suffering and we go through things, don't we? Uh, Paul is saying it does, that doesn't compare to the glory that's to come and, and that as we understand that, as we go through things, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, the author and perfecter of our faith that we do well that we can interpret the things that we're going through now in light of heaven, in light of God's providence, in light of his presence in our lives. Until then, until we, at that point, we live on a cursed, fallen world that has been subjected, we're told here in Romans 8, to futility. Talked about that last week, that there's a, it's just, a rough place. Look around. Not not here. <laughs> I did that a couple of weeks ago. I said, look around. And everybody started looking at each other. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. But look around. I mean, look around at our world and you see that, it, man, it is futile out there. Talk about that a little more as we go here. But um, it, it really doesn't compare to the glory that is stored up for the children of God, for the, the, the people of God, the people who have trusted Jesus for their sins that have stepped into God's kingdom, have stepped out of darkness into light from death to life. That's the essence of the gospel. We know, though, we look forward, we actively wait. We looked at it last week by faith for the revealing of the sons of God in that day. Uh, We're told the creation eagerly waits because it was subjected to futility on account of man's sin. That's the reason for the futility. It's not just a futility, though, because he doesn't say that the earth was subjected to futility, period. He says it was subjected to futility in hope. What does that mean? Uh, again, just by brief review from what we looked at last week, is that from the moment that God cursed man and woman and the ground and the serpent, I mean, from the time of the curse back in the very beginning chapters of Genesis, God has been about the work of redemption. We look at the Bible from that standpoint. It is a book. It is, it is, if you look at it in its entirety, things started out well for a very short time. Man fell. God cursed. And from that point, the hope kicks in because he began at that point what we look at as redemptive history. He began the work of redemption even in the midst of the curse, prophesying that one would come, that Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush Satan's head looking at Jesus. So that's what it means. For us, we live between, and I used the term last week, between the already that that's taken place, the work of Christ on the cross, it's already happened, and it's effective for us today, even though it was 2,000 years ago. And the not yet, that future hope that we lay our eyes upon as we go through things in this life. The point is, we suffer now. The uh, the earth suffers now. 
And, and, and we go through things now. And talk about that a lot this morning. But what he told us and what he, what he says here in Romans 8, we persevere in hope. Until then, we eagerly wait. We, we have a focused waiting. We know what's coming. We focus on what's ahead. Uh, he compared that. Remember last week we talked about it. He compared this perseverance to a woman in labor, which I think is just an interesting analogy. Uh, he says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans with labor and birth pangs and together until now. Essentially, again, he's restating, but in a different way. It's tough right now. Uh, at times we suffer now, but we know by faith that there is a huge benefit at the end of it all. And that's the analogy. That's what he's saying. It's like labor. A woman's in labor. We, <laughs> Emily was sitting in the front row last week and I said, Emily, was, was labor tough? And she's like, uh, yeah, she just had a baby. It's like pretty fresh in her mind, I'm sure. But you know that at the end of it, that which is promised will come. So we looked also at verse 23 last week at having the first fruits of the Spirit as critical to our understanding and how we persevere in difficult circumstances. Uh, in the Old Testament, the first fruits was a pledge of God's ownership of the future harvest. He, they had the spring feast, it was the first fruits, and they would have a handful of grain. And it, it was symbolic of the people saying, you know what, Lord, we give the entire harvest to you. And when he says that about the Holy Spirit, he's saying, Lord, uh, uh, what Paul is saying here is, is that we have the Holy Spirit, the first fruits, as a down payment on heaven, as a down payment on when we are with him there, when we are looking into the eyes of Jesus, as opposed to walking by faith now. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. In First Corinthians, or in Second Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we read in verse 21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a down payment. It's the same word that we would use for an earnest money agreement. You want to buy a house, you give them a, a pledge. You make a payment that says, I'm serious about this. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is given now as a, the first fruits, as a pledge of a future reality. And it is a future reality. This isn't hope so hope. We talked about that. It's no so hope. So the question becomes then, when will that be? Paul's already told us here in Romans 8, it will be at the revealing of the sons of God. It will be in the resurrection when these things come to pass. Until then, he tells us in verse 25, we eagerly wait. Uh, I talked about my grandkids' puppy, how when the snack bag came out, that that puppy is eagerly waiting because it knows what's coming. But we're not talking about a dog with a bone. We're talking about the reality of what we inherit as the sons of God, as the daughters of God. Because our hope isn't in the seen world. It's in the unseen world, that which is yet unseen. We look by faith. So in verses 26 through 30, which we're going to look at this morning, Paul continues to elaborate on the sources of hope that we have. There's a couple of them here. Uh, one will be on the working of the Holy Spirit presently. The other will be as we look at the span of time and where we fit in God's scheme of things and how he works all things together for good. 
So I'm going to read verses 26 through 30, and then we'll come back and unpack it a bit. He says in verse 26, he says, Likewise, or in like manner, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know how to pray, or we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, or the called, according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. A lot there. So what's happening here is Paul, he pivots a bit from talking about future hope. Uh, He's still talking about hope, but, but he takes a shot at it from another angle. In verse 26, verse 26, when he says likewise, he's saying in the same manner, he just finished talking about our hope. We do, we, we look to the future hope that we have in the midst of trials. He's saying in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we don't know how, uh, what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered in the new American standard Bible. He says with groanings that are too deep for words. So he's, he's talking about something that is beyond human speech. What's interesting about this is Paul, as he, as he pivots here, he switches from the future hope, which sustains us as we consider the light, the life of, of, uh, that's to come in light of our present circumstances to the spirit of God who sustains us and gives us hope in the life which now is. So he's switching from future hope to present hope. Why? He says here, because God knows our present weakness and the weaknesses that we have. Now, these first two verses in the section we're in this morning, uh, they form a very important passage on the subject of prayer. We're talking about intercession here. Uh, to intercession, it means or to, to intercede for someone. It's a form of prayer where one prays on behalf of another. All right? Uh, with specific emphasis on the fact that what's being asked is not for the one who's praying, but it's for the benefit and the sake of the other. So as believers, we have two great intercessors that pray for us. Here in Romans 8, in verse 34, we read that Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We'll get to that next week. Here, we're looking at the Spirit making intercession for us, the Spirit praying on our behalves with things that we don't understand. There are two, and they're really obvious, actually, very obvious reasons why we can't pray as we would, as we should. First, we just, we can't see the future. We don't know what's ahead. Uh, and since we can't see what's ahead, uh, we could pray to be saved from things which are actually for our good. Very often, that's what God is doing. I'm praying for God to deliver me from this thing. And he's saying, I, you, you don't see the whole picture. How many times in my relationship with the Lord over the last nearly 40 years, 
I've gotten to the end of something and looked back and gone, oh, that's what you were doing. I get it now, but I didn't get it then. I was crying for deliverance. And you were saying, I'm not going to deliver you because I'm working something good. I'm working something powerful. I'm working something eternal in your heart, in your life. I am conforming you to the image of my son. We'll get to that. We also pray for things that could be for our ultimate harm. And so it's in these times. The second thing here, before I get into that, because in any situation, we don't know what's best for us. We really don't. And God does. And so there's a point where we come to trust God in the middle of tough circumstances, in the middle of difficulty, sometimes great difficulty. And, and we're, we're sad, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. This is, this is so painful. And yet I know you love me and I know you're good. Uh, very often, folks, I've shared this before, but it's so true. When I don't know what God's doing in my life, I don't understand I can't see the future. I don't know what's good for me. I fall back on when I don't understand what he's doing. I fall back on what I do know about him. And I know that he's loving. I know he's merciful. I know he's gracious. I know he's long suffering. In other words, he is very patient with me. And so I, I, I know those things about him. And applying those things to my life in times when my life is pressed in is so important, critically important. Or we just feel like we're out there flapping in the breeze and we just have no idea what's going on. Is God even listening? We looked at that last week. We can begin to get into that faithless posture if we're not careful of seeing big picture that he is involved. He does care. He does love me. The second thing. As I mentioned, he doesn't know, or we don't know what's best for us. Uh, and, and I remember when my kids were little, they would come, and my daughter especially, because she was very spicy. <clears throat> That's a kind word at times. But she would say, Dad, I want this. And I'd say, no, because I can look ahead and say, you know what? That's not going to be good. And oh my goodness, she'd have a fit. Uh, or she'd say, you know, I don't want that. And I'd say, well, you know, you need to think about that. Uh, And she'd have a fit. (laughs) Again, she was just a a very rambunctious, very, I mean, it used to say if my son was at home, nobody knew. If my daughter was home, everybody knew because that's just, that was her personality. She's been in heaven for a few years, uh, miss her a lot. And yet that was the nature of it. She, and I look at this here in Romans 8 and I think, you know, God is that way with us. And sometimes we're like, I'm not getting what I need. I'm not getting what I want. Or you're not listening. And it's as though he says from heaven, oh yeah, I am. I love you. I'm working for your good. You don't see it. That's why you're acting like a child. But I do. As a result, we experience these wordless groans. And they're a reference to the spirits interceding beyond our understanding, because we can't see the future, because we don't know what's best for us. As we look at this, as we look at the groanings here, I want to back up and make an observation in general about uh, about chapter 8. <laughs> and essentially, there's a lot of groaning, groaning that's going on here in this chapter. In verse 22, he says, creation groans. In verse 23, he says, we groan. Verse 26 here, he says, the spirit groans. 
First off, from verse 22, when he talks about the creation groaning, the creation groans outwardly. Remember, he personified the creation. As we looked at that last week, the creation doesn't, it's not like a person, but he personifies it so that we can have greater understanding. And as we look around at this world, we look at the, at the, the birth pains that are rolling along here. We look at the things, the calamity that's going on in other areas, the things that are going on in our own nation. We look at all of that. And, and, and this creation groans. It outwardly groans. We see it all the time. The reason why is because this creation is not as it was intended by God to be. It's fallen. It's cursed. But we take courage. We take hope because it won't always be this way. In Second Peter 3.10, Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's a striking passage. But that's only half the story. I I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon, a a great pastor and theologian from the 19th century. Uh, And he says, this world, so far as we know, will not cease to be. It'll pass through the purifying flame. And then it may be the soft and gentle breath of almighty love will blow upon it and cool it rapidly. And the divine hand will shape it as it cools into a paradise more fair. That's hope. Going on in Second Peter 3 in verse 13, Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want you to notice the most important distinction that, that he makes here between the old heaven, the old earth, that one that we're living on now, and the new heaven and the new earth, is he says it's, it's a place where righteousness dwells. I think that's awesome. Look around. Creation groans for redemption. This creation was subjected to futility. And as such, we live on a planet that is just ripe for the judgment of God. It's ripe for the renewal we talked about in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 16, where God is pouring out wrath on the earth because he is purging the earth at that time from sin. Verse 23, we look at the fact that the creation groans outwardly. Verse 23 tells us that we groan inwardly. Why? Because we, the sons of God, are not as God intended us to be. All of this was perverted in the fall, folks. The creation and humanity. Yes, redeemed. We have a new nature, but we drag that old nature around with us, don't we? Yes, we we understand that by his grace, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin through the work of the cross. That's a sure thing. And also now through the Spirit's work within, we no longer are held under the power of sin, uh, in bondage to sin in our lives. So we've been freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, yet living in a fallen world and suffering the effects of it, plus constantly having to deal with our lower fallen nature, we groan inwardly. Because in that day, the presence of sin will be no more. We won't deal with sin. We won't deal with the effects of the fall in that day. Think about it. What would a world without the presence of sin look like? 
I mean, the list goes on. I mean, if you begin to think about this, I sat and, and thought about this in my office the other day as preparing for this. <laughs> I was just thinking, well, for one thing, I could walk off and leave my phone on that bench in the park and it would stay there for days. <laughs> if I walk off and leave my phone now, it'll be there about 15 minutes. And that's just a very small thing. But the point is, is when this world is is renewed, when we are living in the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Christ on earth, it'll be a glorious time. What need will there, will there be for police? What need will there be for laws when we are obedient from the heart? I mean, you could just go on and on. That's what's ahead for the children of God. And in verse 26 here, so we see that, that the creation groans outwardly. We groan inwardly. And in verse 26, we see here, the spirit groans upwardly. That's what he says. Paul's point is that we groan in the midst of our difficulties. God's not ignoring us. Sometimes we don't have words. And many times, many times, I, I just, I just sit and pray. And I, there are times where I don't, I don't know how to pray for what outcome. I don't know how to pray for how to go through this. I don't know. But I operate in the trust that God does because he's deeply involved in my situation and yours. These are the Spirit's groaning interventions into our trials, our suffering. And he's saying that because of our weakness, we don't always know how to pray or what to pray for. And that's just being honest. But God does. Those prayers that the, the Spirit makes are for us by the uh, by His Spirit that lives within us, and so there's a, something I came across as I was looking at this, and and some people assert that this is praying in tongues. Uh, so is it? Perhaps the gift of tongues is, is a valid, it's a viable spiritual gift, but it's one way of praying in the Spirit. So it's not the only way. More, accurate, more accurately, the question should be, is not, is this praying in tongues, but is this praying in the Spirit? Absolutely it is. I pray in the Spirit all the time. We can't pray in the Spirit without having... We, we, we can pray in the Spirit without having the gift of tongues. We, that is totally... I mean, not all have that gift. We're told that in God's Word. And so, yeah... Uh, I have a prayer language. It's funny, when I was in Bible college, I told God, <clears throat> which usually doesn't work real well. Um, <laughs> I said, God, I don't want the gift of tongues. There's so much abuse out there. There's so much garbage that's heaped on with that. And there, there are entire denominations that say you got to have it or you're just not saved and all this other stuff. And it's like, I don't see that in your word, so I don't want it. And then I was at a worship service one night. Uh, Sunday nights, we we got out of the classroom, and we just went to worship the Lord. And we'd worship sometimes for two, two and a half hours. And it was a glorious time. And during this worship time, at this one point, I was just, I was in the spirit, and I was so moved by the presence of God that this beautiful language began to spill from my lips very quietly by myself. And and I began to weep. And I said, Lord, I didn't want this I, I am just so, because that gift is for edification between me and God. It's generally not horizontal. It's, it's generally vertical. We could talk about that another time. But this may be, as we groan in the spirit, it may be the gift of tongues, but it may also not be. You don't have to have that gift 
to groan, to be in a place in prayer where you're, you're just holding the whole thing up. You know, and we talked about Abba, Father, in a previous study where he says the spirit within us cries out, Abba. I'm going to be straight with you guys. I don't pray Abba. Little kids in Israel still use that, you know, Abba, 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 when they're running after their dad. So that's the word for dad in Israel. And, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I think it's a beautiful thing that Paul is essentially saying this is an intimate relationship. And that's what he means. That's what he intends by that. But when I sit down and I pray and I pour my heart out to the Lord, it's in a posture of Abba because he is my father. But I, for me, I, I, just, I just pour it out and say, Father, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to proceed on this. I don't know what. I have to work to the other side on things very often. But he's faithful. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. It may not be what I'm asking because he knows better than I. Verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So what he's saying here is since God searches the hearts of men and women, he, he can also interpret the mind of the spirit because if you are a child of God, then you have the Holy Spirit. And that being the case, when God searches our heart, he searches the mind of the spirit. And even when that mind only finds expression in unintelligible groans. What Paul's saying here is those groanings make perfect sense to God. They may not make sense to you. I might understand those groanings. God does. And those times where you're deep in prayer and you're just pouring it out, you may not have words. You may, and I have literally just sat and groaned, groaning in my spirit. Said, "Lord, I, here it is." He hears that. Makes perfect sense to him. He sees the whole picture, even if I don't even know what I'm praying. I don't know about you, but that is extremely encouraging to me. I don't have to have. Jesus says in Matthew six, He says, "Don't pray like the Pharisees do. Don't." Don't be known for your long-winded, oh, the old thou omnipotent God and father of all. Blah, blah, blah. He says, don't, no, just pour it out. Just pour it out. He interprets it perfectly and he will work. The, the Holy Spirit will perfect those prayers. That's what's being said. And he's saying here that added to that, those prayers, those groanings are always aligned with God's will. My prayers, as I mentioned, not so much. I might be praying for something or against something that is totally the opposite of what God's doing in my life because I don't know. I'm human. I'm, I'm just a little human, as my friend says. But you know what? The, the Spirit of God will take those prayers, those groanings, and he will align them perfectly with God's will. Uh, again, great encouragement. So when we don't know what God's will is in a certain circumstance, we have the assurance that he searches our hearts. He knows the Spirit's mind, and he perfects our prayers. Uh, so you might be thinking, you know, that's great, Pastor John, <laughs> but you don't know my circumstance. Uh, you don't know the depth of my struggle, my pain, and I don't, generally. I know some of what's going on in people's lives here, not a lot. You might also be thinking the other side of that, all this talk about suffering and struggles and trials and heartache and pain. Glad I came to church this morning because I'm doing pretty good. What's the deal? And if that's the case, 
my friend, I'm truly glad that you are. Because the point in all of this is that we go through seasons in our lives. They're appointed by God. We, we go through seasons where things aren't so tough. Things are going pretty good. We go through seasons where things are, are, are so difficult. I've mentioned before in my life, it feels like I'm walking through glass, or walking through two feet of mud. Those are both metaphors that I've used in times of uh, intense pain, heartache, grief. This fits all of us. It brings us to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, one of the most famous verses in all of God's word. As we look at this, I encourage you, apply it to your life regardless of which side of that equation you're on. Things are going well, things are not going well. Verse 28, he says, and we know that all things, he doesn't say some things. I got to point that out, gang. He says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. First of all, are you the called? Do you know Christ this morning? Have you given your life to him? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sins, to embrace him? If you haven't, I encourage you to do it because this is written for those who are the called according to his purpose. Backing up a bit, looking at this uh, sort of in the broad view in our metaphor of comparing Romans 8 with Mount Everest, uh, with chapter 8, verse 28, here we are really near the top of the mountain. The summit of verses 38 and 39 has come into view. And that is the summit. We'll get to that. The last two verses of this chapter are just so glorious. The Lord willing, we'll look at them next week, but <laughs> no guarantees. You guys know me. Don't get in a hurry on this stuff. But uh, my plan is, is we'll finish chapter 8 next week. It may take a couple of studies, though. So Paul says here, he begins this verse with the words, and we know. That's a bold assertion. We know. Why does he know? Because he's a lover of God. That's why he knows. Because he has the spirit of God within him. That's how he knows. God doesn't work all things together for good to those who don't love him. There's a certain, the Bible tells us a certain terrible expectation of wrath that abides on the lives of people who don't. So is he working all things together for good for people that don't love him? No. But he is working all things together for good to those that do. That's the good news. Paul's a lover of God. Another question about this is how would he know that God causes all things to work together for good? How do you know, Paul? Two reasons. Just looking here and, and taking a broad view again of the scripture. The first is experience. Look at his life. Look at the apostle Paul's life. Look at the degree of hardship and suffering that he went through. I mean, I've read some lists lately. I mean, in perils at sea, in perils on the land, in perils with my countrymen, in perils. He goes through this whole deal in Second Corinthians. And in Acts chapter 20, he talks about all of these things that he goes through. He says, I don't count my life dear to myself. I can finish my race with joy. But here, I'll give you one example. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling... We're talking about the calling, the called, with which you were called. I think this is a fascinating verse because Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. 
he saw himself as a prisoner of Christ, a prisoner of the Lord. What this is saying is that Paul saw prison as both part of his calling and part of God's purpose for himself. He intended to walk it out, to walk worthy of that. You mean, I want to walk worthy of the jail sentence I have hanging on my life? Yeah, that's exactly what he means. I want to work, I want to understand that this is God's purpose in my life. Wait a minute. You mean this jail time being arrested by the Romans, thrown into house arrest, and then later he would be put into prison until he was executed? You mean this is part of God's purpose in my life? Yeah, it's exactly what he means. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. It wasn't an interruption. So Paul's experience comes into play. And how do you know this, Paul? The second is God's word. Folks, we live in a, a largely biblically illiterate society, a largely biblically illiterate church. And I'm talking about the big, the capital C church, not this church. That's why we're committed to doing what we do. Paul understood God's word. He was acquainted with God's providence through it. And all things, in the end, he knew would result in blessing for God's children. The end of the story has already been written, folks. Take courage. Be encouraged by what you're going through now or what you go through at some point. He's working all things together for good. I want to note something, too, here. When when Paul says this, I mean, we go through things where we really hurt. I mean, we. Re- I, I have spent time where I'm thinking there's not one person in this room that understands my pain. I went through such an intense time of pain when my daughter went to heaven that there were gangs in the city I lived in. I lived across the street from the high school and I used to walk. I would divert sometimes for a whole block to walk around them and I walked right through them and I thought, you know what? You can't hurt me any more than I'm already hurting. We go through stuff. Paul's not being flippant with this. Oh, well, you know, hey, my arm's falling off, but praise the Lord. (laughs) It's not what he's saying. No. What he's saying is that when things are so tough that all we can do is groan. God, here's our prayers. Even when we don't know what to pray for or how to pray, he's saying this thing may be painful now, but God's working for our good. I want to take a look at Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to go back. We're talking about Paul understood this in light of the word of God. And there are many, many examples of God working for ultimate good in his word. We have the benefit of seeing, reading through. I mean, we don't see the end from the beginning of our lives, but we do see the end from the beginning in these people's lives. And I want to look at a guy by the name of Joseph. Many of you know who Joseph is, was. I want to look at his life. And I'll summarize here. The ladies study went through Joseph's life just recently. But Joseph, all right, there's Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. They were the three fathers of Israel, right? Abraham's son was Isaac. is when he took up on the mountain, was going to kill him. And God said, wait, wait, I've provided a ram. Isaac had a son, had a couple sons, Esau and Jacob. (laughs) Jacob was known as the the conniver. And and then Jacob went on and he had 12 sons and one daughter. (laughs) Dinah was the girl. How would you like to have been Dinah? I got 12 brothers. (laughs) Anyway, so he, Joseph is Jacob's second youngest child. (laughs) He's favored by his father. I mean, very obviously favored. I mean, to the point where his brothers were like, (laughs) we got to get rid of this guy. He is just 
ticking us off. We, we just, he walks in the room and God forgets we're even, or dad forgets we're even there. So we see that in the story, and I'm just summarizing quickly because I want to get to my point, that here, you know, Joseph has this coat of many colors and, and he goes out and he's betrayed by his brothers and, and the brothers put blood on his coat, take it back to dad, say, oh, he was killed. It was horrible, terrible. And they lie to their dad. They dump Joseph in a hole out in the wilderness. Caravan comes by slave traders. They pick him up. They take him to Egypt where he is sold into slavery. And he's a slave in the house of a guy by the name of Potiphar, who's an officer in Pharaoh's court. And if you know the story here, Joseph, uh, uh, probably a teenage guy and all, uh, Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him, <clears throat> more than a fancy. She tries to seduce him and he keeps spurning her advances to where she gets angry and she actually accuses him of raping her. So he gets thrown into prison. So first, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He gets carted off, sold, and now he's working in a foreign country. And now this woman turns against him. She gets her wife, her husband, who's a, a prominent guy. He says, throw that guy in jail. And they just toss him in prison. So he goes through all of that. And then at this one point, Pharaoh starts to have dreams. Joseph, and again, I can't, I don't, there's no time to get into the details of the story, but Joseph ends up interpreting this guy's dream and he shows the Egyptians, he shows Pharaoh, look, there is a famine coming and let me tell you how to escape the effects of the famine. Build storehouses and store the grain. You have seven years of really good crops coming, store that grain up so that when you have the seven years of lean crops where there's not enough food, you've got it banked. And so that came about. What happened was Egypt prospered when all the other nations around them were floundering because of the famine. And because Egypt prospered and because Joseph is essentially kind of ridden in and da, 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 saved the day, he prospered. He was elevated to like the right-hand guy of Pharaoh. So during this famine, Joseph's brothers in Israel, they get into a problem. They're hungry. And they think, I know, we heard the Egyptians are doing pretty good. Let's go down to Egypt and get some grain. So they go down there. They end up dealing with their own brother who had dumped him in a hole and had gone through all this stuff. And they're dealing with their brother. And Joseph, he identifies his brothers and he begins to test them to see if they had changed. They pass the test. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. His family ends up moving to Egypt, including their dad, but he promises his dad. He says, dad, Jacob, when you die, I will see to it that your body is taken back to the promised land and that you're born in, or that you're buried in the land of your birth. So that's what's been going on here. Uh, and in the meantime, while the family and dad are there, Joseph's brothers see dad as sort of being their protection from Joseph. In Genesis 50, uh, verse 15 through 20, we're going to read through that. It says that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, <laughs> scratching their heads, hum, perhaps dad or Joseph will hate us <laughs> and, and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Uh-oh, dad's out of the way. Joseph might be really ticked about this. In verse 16, so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, and I love this part, <laughs> these guys, they send messengers to Joseph uh, saying, 
before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers in their sin for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. I love this. And it shows me, it proves to me that there is true hope for dysfunctional families. I mean, this is, and if you look, I mean, you study, you look at it and take an honest look at these guys' families. I mean, oh my goodness, Jacob's mother, you know, here, this is how you can steal the, I mean, these guys were, we would, we would just, we would classify them as really dysfunctional, but you know what? God loved them. He used them. And here, these guys, they cook up this scheme. Well, let's just go tell, uh, you know, Joseph, this is what dad said. <laughs> and so it says, in, uh, continuing on, that Joseph wept when he spoke to them, when they spoke to him. It says, then their, his brothers also went and they fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. All right, Joseph, we're at your mercy. Dad's gone. He's not going to protect us. We're, we're appealing to you. But I think what's really interesting is what Joseph says, how he responds to his brothers when they do this. Verse 19, he says, Joseph, it says, Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? It, truly, you, you're thinking I'm going to judge you? No, that's not my job. That's something that God does. In verse 20, he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me. Hey, that's a given. You guys did some really, really rank stuff. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You know what, guys? You meant it for evil. You did this whole thing years and years ago. I went through all kinds of stuff, you know, picked up by the slave traders, sold as a slave, thrown into prison. I went through all of these things. But you want to know something? God worked it for good. God was working it for good through the whole thing. Did Joseph have any insight during that time? No, but he knew who God was and he trusted God in the midst of really, really bad circumstances. And he tells his brothers, this is God meant it for good in order to bring it about to this day, to save many souls alive, to save our family, who would become, now that they're in Egypt, they would multiply over the next 400 years and they would become a nation. And to this day, they're known as the nation of Israel. That's how they got their birth. That's how God had to position Joseph to be able to take them and receive his brothers so that they would actually come and prosper in the land. Joseph saw it. Why? Because he trusted God. Because he looked for a heavenly perspective in the middle of the things he was going through. And as his brothers came into the land, he had this aha moment. Wow. That's what you were doing, God. That's, you were, this whole, wow, you know, he had plenty of years, years to become bittered, embittered. He could have been just, yeah, you want to know something? You guys are toast. Well, they probably didn't have toast back then, but you know what I mean. He, He could have just said, look, you're done. I'm done with you. But he had a divine perspective on the horrible circumstances that he had endured because he got, he saw God's hand in the midst of it. He chose not to destroy them. He chose not because he looked at their offense from a heavenly perspective. He said, I'm not God. So what Joseph tells his brothers here in Genesis 50, it's the same thing that Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 8. 
God is working in and through the circumstances in your life. And you don't know the future. You don't know the outcome. You don't understand. I don't understand the things that are going on now that are shaping what's going to happen in my life then. Church, be encouraged. That's how God works. That's how he deals. It's not in the contract for him to tell us ahead of time what he's doing. He does say that I love you with an everlasting love. He does say, I am merciful. I'm compassionate. I am not flipping about this. I'm not just putting you through it because, <laughs> you know, see how you shape up there, buddy. No, that's not, that's not him. That's not who he is. Joseph was able to see God's calling on his life. He was able to see God's purposes in his life. The same thing that Paul says here. Make your calling and election sure. Verse 29, Paul, back here in Romans, he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We love to quote Romans 8.28, For God causes all things to work together for good uh, to those that are called, the called, uh, according to his purposes. He's, he's doing that. But when he talks about his purposes, you've got to get into verse 29 to see what that purpose is. What is that purpose? To conform us to the image of his son. To give us the mind of Christ. For us to be able to move forward in our lives with a divine perspective on our lives, on the events in our lives, on the circumstances we're going through, hurtful or good. Because that's what he's about. Don't miss this. Folks, don't, don't miss this. It's why we do what we do here. You know, the tagline that our church uses is that we're learning to think like Jesus. But it's not just a tagline. It's, it's, it's not just a thing that we put out there because every church has their own little thing, you know? No, we're serious about that. That's why we study God's word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because we want to get the full counsel of God. If we don't get the full counsel of God, we're going to flounder. We're going to be faced with circumstances that we don't understand. We're not connecting it to the word of God. So as the spirit of God works in us, we see that that's our purpose. To be conformed to the image of his son. To learn to think more like Jesus every day. Now, I want to tell you too, if you hang out here or in any church for (laughs) any time at all, you're going to discover we're not there yet. We're not, but by the grace of God, he's working. We're in process. We're all in this boat together and he's working through the events in our lives, whether we understand them or not. The spirit of God is groaning, making intercession for us in, in, in wordless groans. Finishing up in Genesis 50, one more verse. Joseph speaking here in verse 21. He says, now, therefore, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. The Bible tells us in the gospel of John that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Joseph is dealing with his brothers in grace. Let me take care of you. But he's also dealing with them in truth. You know what? You meant that for evil against me. But, 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 but God worked it for good. So he's being truthful with them. He's being oh so gracious with them. And folks, that's the attitude that we need to have as we go through our daily lives, as we go through our daily struggles, as we go through body life here. Be gracious. 
understand that we're all in process. I have warned many times from, from this pulpit, don't think that you understand what God's will is for the person sitting next to you. And I would add, especially if that's your spouse, because <laughs> I, I want you to have an easy time. Seriously, though, God has an agenda in each of our lives as he is conforming us to the image of his son. He is doing that divine work that we don't really have very often any clue. And for me to presume that I understand what his will is for you, it's just flat wrong. You got to lean into the fact that we're all in process. You got to lean into the fact that, that folks, we've got cracks and warts and flaws. Give God room. Have grace. That's how we come together. Jesus says when they open the door to your church, when they, when they look in at your fellowship, they better see my love. And I encourage you guys, those of you that have been here for a while, reach out to people that are coming in. Show them the love of Christ. I don't ever want, and, I, and it happens sometimes, but I don't want people to, this to be the church where people show up, they come in, they walk out and say, nobody even said hi. That's rough. Extend the love of God. Ex- extend the grace of God. Verse 30. He says, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Why would Paul do this in the middle of this talk about God causing all things to work together for good? And I want to remind you, he is writing this to a church. He is not writing it to a group of theologians. There is so much debate about this passage. Well, where do you stand on, uh, you know, all of that? And, and, and yeah, I believe the Bible establishes positions on these things. I'm not saying that that's not so. But he's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of believers. He's saying, look, you got to understand that God way back in eternity past knew that you were going to choose him now. And he knows the end of your life. He knows that he's working all things together for good in your life. Understand that he's God. And you're not, by the way, but understand that he's God. And that, that he is the one who holds your life. He holds your every breath in your hand, in his hand. In, in, in Hebrews chapter one, he says that God upholds all things by the word of his power. As we submit ourselves to the Lord, we understand that we take great encouragement. There is hope in this particular verse where he's saying, look, God knew you in eternity past. He knew that if you would be the one who would choose him, we'll talk about it in, in Romans chapter nine, where he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Can't God make one vessel for glory and one vessel for destruction? Yeah, he can. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the foreknowledge of God. But here, this is supposed to be an encouragement, not something for us to argue about and debate. And I'll, I'll debate it with people. I mean, that's fine. But he's writing about those who are predestined, he also called. Let me turn that inside out. Let me say that in reverse. God called every single person that he predestined. Makes sense. Makes sense to me. As Paul uses the word in Romans being called, to emphasize that word, uh, to be called by God, he's talking about God breaking into our awareness of him and drawing us toward himself. That's what it is to be called, that God is calling. The Bible tells us that God is patient, that he is willing that none should perish, but that all would come to repentance and have eternal life. Do all come? No. Will all come? No. But, but, 
He's calling. Paul uses the word to be called about him breaking into our awareness, revealing himself to us. And then he justifies every single person that responds to that call. To be justified by God is to be made right with him. That's what it means to be justified. And finally, every person that God justified by faith in Christ, these he also glorified. Paul writes about the future glory that we've looked at last week in the past tense here, indicating that our glorification is as good as completed already in God's eyes because he sees all of it. So he's saying that we're glorified. So when we look at issues of predestiny and free will, both are taught, both are true. We are predestined and we have a free will to choose. When we look at divine election and human choice, both are taught, both are true. However, if you take one stance at the exclusion of the other, it falls apart. One has to work in conjunction with the other. Uh, I love the simplicity of you want to know if you're called? You want to know if you're predestined? Choose Christ and you can know. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that, folks, because Paul wasn't writing to, writing to theologians. He, he, he's, he's speaking encouraging words to a church. Let's keep it there. See the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel in it. That's what we're about. We want to see Jesus working in the details of our lives. And do we always? No. Very often we don't. But we trust that he's good. We trust that he loves us. We trust that our lives are firmly in his hands. And when we don't know what to pray for, the spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words because he knows that we can't see the future. He knows that we don't know what to ask for often. But he pray or he prays for us, the spirit intercedes for us in perfect accord with the will of God. That is so hugely encouraging to me that in that God is working all things together for good for me because I love him. For those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We've seen with Joseph's life, Joseph was called according to God's purpose. Does Joseph's life look like what Joseph thought it would look like? (laughs) Hardly. We see in Paul, the apostle's life, the guy that wrote this here in Romans, that his life was unfolding here. He would end up sitting in a jail but you know, as a reason, as a part of the calling and the, the, the purpose of God in that jail, he wrote, he couldn't go visit churches anymore. He's under house arrest. So he would write letters. We have four of them in the New Testament. And they probably wouldn't be there were it not for the divine providence of God that Paul, that God had to sit Paul down, chain him to a Roman guard, to a Praetorian guard and burden him to write under the inspiration of the spirit. We get Ephesians, Colossians, um, and I went blank, but two more. The point is, it's all part of God's plan. And, And we can take great courage in that. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I do know this. Your life is in his hands. Be encouraged. If there's sin in your life, repent. Ask him to forgive you. If you don't know him this morning, again, turn from the old life. Embrace the life, this life that we're talking about here. And I I guarantee you on the basis of God's word, he will flood your life with new purpose, new hope, new understanding, and a whole new worldview that is centered by his spirit and through his word. 
Let's pray. Father, as we look at these things, as we go through and and we and we go down through these things and, and we we endeavor to understand these things, I pray, Father, for each one here that again, by your Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. You're the one who takes these truths and drives them into our hearts. So I pray for each one that you would meet us right where we're at. We're all in different places. And yet we know, Lord, that your love is sturdy and steadfast and that you want to give us illumination in our hearts and our lives. You want to be able to have us get to a point, perhaps out there somewhere, where we have understanding of why the difficulty was here now. We're thankful, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would just go before us this day. You bring to our remembrance the things we've looked at here. And Lord, that you would be just simply Lord in our hearts, in our lives. We yield to your work in Jesus' name.